now available in podcast feeds. Don't miss your chance to join three friends as they unpack movies from their childhood. I'm just going to watch you die. What was this film rated again? PG. And decide just how traumatic they were. That is how long they're stabbing him. I giggled through that scene because it was so uncomfortable and weird. In Clamshell Case Files, starring the bad boy of podcasting, Quentin. I mean, if my dog killed another dog, I would protect him by burying that body, but I would never kill the dog myself. Girl Friday, Bridget. I just want to apologize to Samantha Mathis that I have been maligning her breasts for the for decades. For the and America's sweetheart, Matt. Where a yeah. giant toy elephant is blowing snow out of its hooter mm. nose oh, yes. thingy all over it's the building. <laughs> You're invited to share in the magic of clamshell case files. Available wherever you download podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Discography Deep Dive, an extended look at the history of our favorite bands and artists, presented by the Zero Science Network. My name is Lils Martin, and on this season of the program, we'll be digging into the history of one of my favorite acts. A duo who has spent much of their career jumping in and out of genres, innovating and influencing a bevy of future artists and bands, yet never got the credit they deserved in their own homeland. I'm talking about the brothers Ronald and Russell Mayo. One, a flamboyant, over-the-top frontman with soaring yet eccentric vocals, the other a stoic, glowering, and unassuming keyboardist just out of view, but controlling all the strings. Better known by their band name, Sparks. Chapter 1. The Early Years. Nothing is Sacred. Before we begin our deep dive in earnest, I need to admit up top that this episode will not be digging quite so heavily into the personal histories of the band as previous episodes have. For as much research as I've been able to do on this topic, there's very little information on the personal lives of Ron and Russ Mayle as individuals. It's not even known if the two of them have spouses or partners. This mystery seems entirely to be by the band's own design. We're in good company with Bob Dylan, Russ Mayle has remarked in an interview with The Independent in 2017. But we always think that what we do with our music should be the thing, and live performance and what you see on our album covers. We think the whole story of the music and the image and how we portray ourselves is much more compelling. We feel the less you know, it keeps the mythology and the image in a better position. You do know about us and the type of music and the lyrics and their sensibility. Through that, you do know something about our lives. A documentary on Sparks is currently in development from director Edgar Wright, which could hopefully shed some further light upon the brothers. And Ron Mayle has teased the possibility of a joint autobiography down the line. But I will be doing anything that I can to fill the gaps between talking about the albums themselves and apologize for anything that was not covered. The Mayle brothers were born into affluency in Pacific Palisades, a middle-class suburb of Los Angeles, California. Ron was born on August 12, 1945, and Russ on October 5, 1948. Their father, Meyer, was a graphic designer for the Hollywood Citizen News, while their mother, Miriam, was a librarian. The remarkably photogenic brothers spent much of their childhood modeling young menswear for mail-order catalogs, attending movies, and receiving musical education. Ron would learn how to play the piano and Russ the violin. 
The two were absolutely taken by the development of rock and roll music, girl groups, and Motown, but dismissive of the folk music movement, considering it cerebral and sedate. The breakthrough moment of their musical upbringing came with the arrival of the British Invasion. More specifically, bands like The Rolling Stones, The Move, The Kinks, and their all-time favorite, The Who. When the brothers came of age in the 1960s, they enrolled in UCLA, Ron as a cinema and graphic arts major, and Russ as a major in filmmaking and theater. It was during this time that Russ composed several songs in his spare time, including Big Bands, a song that would become a very early Sparks track. As the 60s began to wind down, Ron and Russ began to make their way through various local bands, the longest lasting of which was a 1967 group called Urban Renewal Project. It consisted of Russ on vocals, Ron on keys, and their personal friends Fred and Ronna Frank on guitar and drums respectively. By all accounts, Urban Renewal Project was a bit of a mess. The group only had one amplifier between them all, their drum kit consisted only of a snare drum, frequently played their songs in different keys by mistake, and developed a reputation as troublemakers among their fellow teen bands. Despite their lack of coordination, the band did end up recording a few songs, only one of which would see release. The rough demo Computer Girl, which was later added as a bonus track on a Japan-only release in 2006. My computer A turning point came in 1968, when the brothers met guitarist and audio production wonk Earl Mankey at UCLA, who would later become a producer and engineer for various LA-based acts including The Runaways, Concrete Blonde, and The Addicts. The three of them hit it off after Mankey responded to an ad the males had placed and formed a new band in 1969. <laughs> The trio were dubbed Half Nelson, and they set about writing songs and recording home demos on Menke's Magnavox tape recorder. The trio were later joined by local musicians Ralph Oswald on bass and John Mendelssohn on drums in recording a demo tape titled A Whooper in Tweeter's Clothing. Oswald and Mendelssohn were kicked out not long after, however, after the tape was sent to record companies to no response. Half Nelson were undaunted, however, and set about recording a new set of demos, including four new songs the band had been working on, Wonder Girl, Fala Fali, Slow Boat, and High Sea. They also brought in a new rhythm section, Harley Feinstein on drums, and Earl's brother Jim Mankey on bass. The band's manager, Mike Burns, invested some of his own money into the production of the new demo, which was then forwarded to Todd Rundgren, who at the time was still a member of his 70s power-pop band, Runt and had developed a reputation towards championing eclectic and off-kilter pop music. Rundgren was intrigued by the demo's odd takes on song arrangements and their europhilic appearance, and brought his sound engineer Thaddeus James Lowe, also of psychedelic band The Electric Prunes, to go watch Half Nelson practice. Rundgren was impressed and signed Half Nelson to Bearsville Records, where they would release their first two studio albums. The first of the band's Bearsville albums was released in 1971 as the self-titled Half Nelson. The material on Half Nelson is largely unchanged from the original demos, but with increased sound fidelity. As a producer, Rundgren liked the band's sound enough that he allowed them to do as they saw fit, and was generally very hands-off during the process, but what changes he did suggest were often resented by the brothers. 
Ronwood stated in an interview with Aloha Magazine, Todd Rundgren is extremely nice, but if you had to work with him, you wouldn't have much space for your own ideas. We did not feel his way of producing was suitable for our music. However, he could not be convinced otherwise. As for the album itself, it was well received critically, but did not light the world on fire in a commercial sense, largely due to a lack of promotion. One track from the album, Wonder Girl, did become a big enough minor regional hit to chart at number 92 on the Cashbox charts, but otherwise went unnoticed. Half Nelson is mostly remembered as a Shape of Things to Come album for the band, and an early example of the band's inventiveness, incorporating unorthodox recording techniques with lo-fi gadgetry, surreal arrangements, tape loops, and experiments with pedals and effects, including running reverb over found percussion such as cardboard boxes. Half Nelson may not have propelled Sparks to high heights from the start, but it's considered a fairly solid art-pop debut, with songs that predate the experimental songs of New Wave music as well as deep-cut fan favorites like Falafa Lee, Biology 2, and the aforementioned Wonder Girl. Not long after Half Nelson's release, Bearsville Records owner Albert Grossman suggested the band change their name as a means of making them more marketable. Grossman suggested the name Sparks Brothers, stating that the band reminded them of the Marx Brothers. For brevity's sake, however, the band chose only to use half of this name. Thus, Half Nelson were officially changed to Sparks, and their debut album was later reissued with a new eponymous title to reflect the change. To promote their debut, attempts were made to perform some live shows to varying degrees of success. The problem with Sparks was that their music was geared towards a studio recording atmosphere, and their arrangements were often quite difficult to perform in a live club setting. Nonetheless, Sparks pressed on and along the way developed a very distinct image, one that would stick with the band for decades. By this point in the early 70s, Russ Mayles' hair had become long, shaggy, and curly. This paired with the ruffled, foppish shirts he tended to wear and his hyperactive stage presence gave him the air of some bizarre hybrid between Robert Plant and Shirley Temple. Ron had also grown his hair out into similarly poofy curls, but went in a slightly different direction with them. In contrast to Russ's bouncy presence, Ron could be seen standing starkly rigid behind his keyboards, dressed to the nines in a nice conservative suit with a bushy toothbrush mustache, and rarely acknowledging the audience apart from some unsettling stares and eye rolls. In an interview with French magazine Rock and Folk, Russ laid out the effect Ron intended to convey. My brother Ron liked flamboyant, outgoing rock stars like Pete Townsend from The Who, but he couldn't emulate them on keyboard, so he stayed stoic and calm. Ron was in the vein of silent film comedians like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, or Jacques Tati, and became a sort of trademark of the band. Their live shows would often incorporate strange props and performance pieces which referenced art films and old-timey vaudeville, which confused the hard rock audiences of the LA scene, but earned them enough of a cult following to perform on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Their sophomore album was soon recorded throughout 1972 and saw release in 1973. The album was titled after their original demo, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, and was produced by Thaddeus James Lowe, who had engineered their debut. The sound on Woofer was more dense and sharp than on their self-titled debut, 
while maintaining much of the idiosyncrasies of their forebear. The primary difference between the two records is the male's deeper dive into Europhilia in terms of songwriting. Woofer featured dapper and eccentric takes on glam rock, with songs that shifted in subject from paranoia to museums to getting into car crashes to pick up women just as quickly, while dripping with the kind of wittiness that hearkened to the time of cosmopolitan wit that Oscar Wilde or Cole Porter would convey, and still find time for a Rodgers and Hammerstein cover. The most traditional rock-sounding track off the album, Girl from Germany, was released as a single but attracted no chart success. And Woofer was another commercial letdown. Despite this, the album attracted greater critical interest and the band had developed enough of a cult following that they were able to engage in a 30-date tour of Europe, which included a performance on England's live music show, The Old Grey Whistle Test. Sparks set up a temporary headquarters in England, where their parents were living at the time, and were instantly struck by the reaction they got overseas as compared to their home country. In America, they had performed at the famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go club to little over five people. In Europe, there were often lines stretching around the block. They received a month-long residency at the Marquee Club in London, and the press regularly compared them to other famous glam rock groups of the time like T-Rex. The band returned to L.A. after the tour was over, but the tour stuck with them, and ultimately be a linchpin that would lead Sparks to the greatest commercial success of their careers. That about does it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time on the program when we'll be digging into the glam rock years of Sparks, including what's considered their most successful and enduring album in their catalog, and their eventual return to the continent that birthed them. Discography Deep Dive is a production of the Zero Science Network. For more great podcasts, please check out our website at www.zero-science.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever podcasts can be found. I'm Lils Martin, and I'll see you next time. Hasta mañana, monsieur! With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.